This episode of the Student Housing Insight Podcast is sponsored by Simple Bills. Utility management is a beast in student housing. If you're not offering a frictionless and transparent utility billing process for your student residents, it's going to affect the brand of your student property through Google rankings and all the other review sites. Simple Bills is the answer. Check them out at simplebills.com. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees, and joining me today is our co-host, Ken Miller. Ken, how are you? I'm doing great, Wes. Thanks for asking. Well, I, I'm glad that fall has finally come to, <laughs> to the so southeast. So am I. <laughs> My goodness. I mean, it was 97 degrees one day, and then literally the next day we dropped 20 degrees, and it's been that way ever since. So we're pretty happy to finally see fall here. I think we jumped, but it, it seems to me we jumped from, from a, a really hot summer to uh, almost immediate winter. I think I don't know what happened to fall in between. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it's it's nice to finally be wearing jeans to the office. <laughs> <laughs> for um, sure. Anyway, well, hey, uh, Ken, I, I'm really excited for the listeners today. You did a uh, an interview uh, back in September with Eddie Moreno, the executive VP of operations at Cardinal Group, and. You know, it's uh, the thing I love about Eddie. Eddie's been on the podcast before. He was part of our uh, site level to C-suite episode that we did a couple years ago at Interface. And, you know, he's just one of these guys. He's he's grown up in this industry very much like I have. But it, but it's really cool to get his perspective on things and, and kind of how he's come up uh, through the ranks. And then he's now in a company that's not just doing a, a large amount of student housing, but also doing a lot of conventional as well. But but really, just before we get into it, I wanted to kind of ask you, hey, what was, uh, you know, what were kind of your thoughts on this interview and bringing it to our audience? And what do you think they should be taking away from it? Sure. I, I think that, uh, well, first of all, I'd just kind of like to sort of dovetail on what you were talking about with Eddie. So it's always great to hear from somebody who has started in the industry and in one position and worked their way through. And I think a number of us have done that with uh, operational background, technology background, et cetera. We all started somewhere and we've dedicated most of our lives, it seems. I know more, almost 50% of mine at this point to the multifamily slash student industry. And it's good to see that um, we have folks that uh, have accomplished that. So I think it gives a lot of hope to those of us who are working in the trenches and doing things during our daily jobs that there is opportunity within our industry to advance and move forward. And I certainly want to encourage anyone out there who is uh, working in any capacity in student housing to know that the sky's the limit, really. It's just a matter of application, uh, stick-to-itiveness, education, and uh, continue to grow in this business because uh, it it can definitely be rewarding. As far as our podcast was concerned, I think this episode is going to be a lot of fun for a lot of people because it gives a different perspective on operations. So uh, we tried to go in and paint the picture of what's going on within student housing, how it's applying to uh, particular parts of the industry, and then we took some takeaways from how's Cardinal doing it, are there differentiating factors, and how can those same types of lessons be applied to anyone's particular business as they're out there running, even running a property or running an organization or a region within student housing. 
Yeah, and it's and it's really cool getting that perspective of you know Eddie was very much involved very early on with Cardinal and and they've just exploded with some with some massive growth. Definitely, uh, I think even from the time that <laughs> from the time that this interview was recorded back in September till now, they've taken over a, a couple of big portfolios and have, and have continued to grow. And it's just it's amazing, kind of getting his perspective. I and mean, he even says. Hey, the the team that we were, or the size that we were in 2013, could never compete with you know the big players that are in student housing today in 2019 because there just there weren't the resources and, and those type of things. So it's it's amazing to see. And, and I've got another podcast. I haven't even told you about this, Ken, but I've got another podcast yeah. that I'm working on where we're actually talking to a lot of the C-suite guys from uh, management companies and, and ownership groups that are under 10,000 beds. So these are not you know top 25 management companies and getting a lot of their take. So it's going to be interesting, you know, when that comes out later to kind of, you know, put this beside of, you know, what we learned from Eddie and Cardinal in this to, you know, kind of see how is it that, you know, a group that's under 10,000 is, is looking at, at growing, you know, through acquiring or third-party management or whatever, and and be able to see, you know, what kind of challenges they see right now. So certainly, I mean, when you're in those uh, the, the the smaller realm uh, initially, you're as as I did when, when I was in the operations side, looking at uh, just your your budget and looking at your PL and understanding your income versus expenses type thing. Uh, when you haven't reached that level of critical mass, it's very difficult to have some of the other programs that you'd like to have in-house uh, as you're growing. But um, yeah. as you kind of catch your stride, so to speak, uh, a lot of that starts uh, taking care of itself just through volume. And it doesn't mean that, that that you have to be large in order to be successful. Certainly, I'm not stating that, but it certainly makes things some things a little bit easier, especially on the third party side when you're dealing with multiple owners and entity relationships and so forth. It, it is one of, you know, I will tell you, and, and I express this on LinkedIn sometime in the past couple of weeks that, you know, walking away from a lot of the conferences and things that, that we were doing and that I was a part of in, in September and October, early October, I, I, I am a little, I don't want to say concerned. That's not the right, that's not the right word at all, but I, I am, yeah, and Eddie mentions this in the podcast as well. You know, all of these management companies are, are running with with pretty slim profit margins. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of Very just true. one of those you know necessary evils, right? And, and uh, as far as management is concerned, and and because of that. There's just very little that that can actually be made off of off of management fees, and I'm a little concerned for the you know for the smaller guys, the regional type players that may be trying to do something innovative and come into the market um, and, and grow to to a national level. I think it's going to be pretty hard for them to do. Yeah, um, I think uh, one of the one of the phrases I coined in the operations world of third party fee is uh, is the free or less program. So what I mean by that is that uh, you know owners are happy for you to manage for them for free or even if you you know would like to pay them <laughs> uh, to manage your assets sometimes it seems. Uh, so 
all operators, whether large or small, on the third-party side and even on the ownership side, have to have creative ways to uh, continually reinvent themselves as they are going through these growth cycles and emphasizing the things they do well. And then with that emphasis, fulfilling that, because in truth, in third-party fee, you're only as good as your last financial statement. And most people kind of look at that and laugh, but it's totally true. So we really have uh, in operations a struggle of making sure that we're performing not only just at turn or not only just, you know, in the lease up mode of a new property, but every single solitary day operate as though the owner is going to show up at your property, the owner is going to show up at your corporate office, et cetera, and work to build that performance level up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, let's uh, let's don't hold the audience back any further. Let's go ahead and push play on, on this interview and we'll come back with a couple of takeaways. Great. I think that uh, folks will enjoy this and uh, looking forward to their feedback. Well, Eddie, welcome to the podcast today. I want to just kind of jump right in and uh, ask you a few questions about uh, Cardinal Group and uh, what you guys are doing. And then more more importantly, let's uh, narrow in or focus on uh, what's going on on site, what's happening back in the corporate office, and maybe there's some uh, lessons learned out there you can provide to us as we go forward. So uh, sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Let's uh, Let's kick it off. All right. So tell me a little bit about uh, yourself, what you're doing at Cardinal, and then, uh, you know, how's Cardinal look today? And uh, tell us a little bit about your growth strategy. Sure. So I serve as the executive vice president of operations and oversee the operating arm of the company, uh, work a lot with new and existing clients as we transition and and manage uh, their portfolios ongoing and focus a lot on the growth of the company, uh, how and why we do what we do and how we can continue to scale as we grow throughout the years. Uh, Cardinal Group uh, is based in Denver, Colorado. We have uh, a portfolio of 42,000 student beds, and we operate uh, right now between five and 6,000 conventional units. We have an owned asset portfolio that makes up about 15% of our total bed count. And uh, right now we're in about 33 states. We just transitioned into a new state, Utah. So that's that's a new one under our belt. But uh, we've enjoyed a a lot of growth over the last several years and, and are looking forward to continuing that in the years to come. And then how are you stratified as far as own versus manage? Are you mainly third-party fee? Are you a mixture? How does that work? Sure. So, uh, you know, I mentioned just briefly earlier, uh, a second ago, that we have uh, about 15% of our, our student portfolio um, is owned assets. So we have uh, several communities that were uh, purchased under a, a fund vehicle that our investment shop uh, had raised and finished placing last year. Um, the rest of our portfolio is, is a traditional third-party Portfolio. So we operate communities for large institutional shops and REITs, uh, all the way to single family offices that uh, that own real estate. So we, we kind of run the gamut of, of uh, client profiles and, and client sizes. Okay, good. It's good to know. So as you're going through your uh, uh, sort of your budgeting plan or your expansion plan, where do you see yourself the next, say, 24 to 36 months as a company? You know, we've been on quite a quite an upswing uh, just just this year alone. Through the end of June, we uh, grew our portfolio about twenty five percent. We're trying to grow in a controlled fashion. We want to make sure that our product isn't diluted along the way. That we're able to scale and invest in our our personnel and our platforms to ensure that we're we're delivering for our clients. Um, but we, we we see continued expansion. We see continued expansion. Uh, on the owned asset side via fund vehicles, both on the stu- in the student space as well as the, the multifamily side of our business. Uh, and then we see continued growth on the third party side. 
while we were getting to critical mass, call it, you know, 15, 20, 20,000, 30,000 beds, uh, the profile of our, our clients varied uh, greatly. I think as we've continued to grow, one thing that we've we've done and we'll focus uh, continue to, to focus on as, as, as we look into the future is expanding with existing clients, doing some consolidation with, with existing clients to operate larger portfolios uh, for those folks. And uh, we've started some of that work already and, and are confident that as we continue into 2020 and 2021, uh, that we'll be able to realize some of those opportunities. All right. And with a, uh, I was with a focus on the operation side and running student housing, which we know is uh, essentially you've got a, a mix of both student and conventional. So do you actually run the operations with student differently than you do conventional or does it kind of mix over together or, or do you have one, one that overshadows another? That's a good question. We, we're, af- we're asked it often. Um, I actually love giving the answer to it. I think we borrow a little bit from from each. The conventional multifamily space is you know, 45, 50 million units nationwide. There's companies that have been operating in the space for you know, 40, 50 years, some, some longer. And by and large, that space is, is very sophisticated, the way that they utilize uh, analytics and revenue management. Some of these things that are more typical uh, in the conventional world, we're able to pull into our student operating realm and, and apply them. The way that we staff our student communities looks more like a conventional community as as opposed to a staff that has you know two or three full-time team members and a bunch of community assistants. We actually look more like a conventional team uh, when it comes to, to our on-site staffing structures. But there's a lot from student housing that we actually bring over into our conventional lease-ups and some of our conventional communities, specifically on the marketing side. I think student housing has done a really good job at understanding lead attribution, has done a really good job at understanding brand development and executing that brand strategy within a particular submarket. And uh, we've taken a lot of that pizzazz and a lot of that, you know, very methodical uh, work in brand development and, and deployed it on the conventional side to a lot of great success. Right now we're working on uh, four lease-ups here in the Denver area, and each of them is in a different part of the city, and a couple of them are, are located in the downtown central business district. And the, the profile of that demographic looks very similar to a student in many ways, and so we've taken some of those lessons learned on student lease-ups and brand development into those assets specifically and, and feel like we've gotten a lot of bang for our buck there. That's good, because I know that uh, back, back when I was running operations myself, I, I always... Uh, made an attempt to uh, run the conventional side, almost like I had run the student side, just to the sense of urgency and getting people to, to get into that, that whole rhythm of an operational performance status, knowing that you've got to constantly empty and turn and go. I know that the turn is not as much on the conventional side, but the effort involved in getting the performance up is there, there's lots of similarities there. So, so thanks sure. for sharing that with us. So as you kind of look at um, some of your differentiating factors, I know you've got obviously student housing, uh, competitor landscape has grown over the years. What do you see as some of the the factors that maybe set you apart from others or there's some blends that happen and kind of talk a little bit about how that transcends down to the side level? Well, as as a company, I think we we were fortunate enough to expand into third-party space at a time that, this is back in 2013, um, there were a a lot of well-established companies and we were able to not you know, see their mistakes and, and not repeat them, but effectively there was there was some models out there, right? And we were able to look at some of the models, staffing models, resource models that that other competitors had had uh, employed, and think for ourselves before we really build this company. 
uh, you know, to a size and scale that, that we think we can, how can we really shake up the way that we're providing resources to our teams and our clients, most importantly, both of those, those two groups, uh, in a way that is, is different and, and solves a problem? And one thing that we hear over and over from asset managers, and you hear this at conferences a lot, is that the, the drop-off between the level of sophistication between a typical regional manager and, a, and, and their asset manager on the other side of the phone that gap is pretty wide. And it's not because there's a lack of talent on the operations and management side, it's because there's a lack of, of time. And oftentimes our, you know, a typical regional is asked to be, you know, a jack of all. And when they're a jack of all, they're a master of none. And so we want to, we wanted to approach the resource model differently. And at a time that we hadn't built out all of the various departments that companies typically do. And so at that time, we had decided to push a lot of the resources via payroll dollars into the middle of our company and to build what we call operating groups and operating cells. And so an operating cell is our answer to a regional model, whereby we deploy a team of four dedicated individuals that are assigned to a portfolio of, of, of communities and clients. And they have different disciplines from accounting to leasing and marketing to general operations and then, you know, portfolio management and, and client oversight. And that allows us to make sure that we have, we put our portfolio managers, the folks that are interacting with our clients in the best position to engage with our clients, to, to, to make good decisions, to make them in a timely manner um, in a way that's accretive to their, to their overall business strategy. And that required us operating with a relatively lean executive team as we grew but it proved that having more dedicated resources in our operating operators' hands, it proved that that was was a way that we can build a foundation of team members and a foundation of of loyal and trusted clients that know that we're we're focused on the performance of their assets. And I think that's something that's really you know made us stand out over the years. At the risk of of sounding cliche, I think one of the things that makes us stand out is our culture. I think every company would, you know, says says the same thing, and and not to knock uh, any any other company's culture, but speaking for our own, I think that, you know, we we have a, a mutual agreement of of striving towards excellence, and we have a very competitive culture, but it's not a step on your net culture. It's competitive in the way that you see the folks around you doing great things, working hard, you know, being creative, dedicating you know themselves to to the task at hand. And you want to do the same thing. And so, you know, I think over the years, you know, we've relied on that culture. It's the glue that binds and, you know, all companies have rock stars, but uh, you can't, you can't build a company on one or two or three individuals backs. It, it's just not sustainable. And so the culture survives any one person or any, any group of people. And uh, that's something that we feel continues to drive our company and, and is something that, you know, we'll continue to lean on as we continue to grow and, and hopefully attract talent to, to the, to the company. Yeah, and I think that uh, having that corporate buy-in too from the very top is very important. I've seen uh, worked with many companies where uh, there was a uh, sort of uh, I don't know if you want to call it lip service. That's probably the way to put it. Where yes, we're going to be this way, but then the uh, executives don't act the same way, and it doesn't take long before everybody else picks up on that. So it's good to have you know, companies out there that have the full buy-in from top all the way through, and then you actually can get things done. You can instigate a uh, an environment where everybody is successful and feels like they're contributing toward the overall goals and objectives of the company. So um, 
good point there for sure. Yeah, oftentimes when I'm, I'm conducting an interview with somebody and, and, you know, we're hopefully fortunate enough to, to uh, have them have them join the company where we always ask, do you have questions of us? And inevitably, you know, call it seven out of 10 times, someone will ask, you know, is that real? Is your culture real? And, you know, one of the things that, that we always talk about is the best idea wins. And from the first day I joined Cardinal to today, I can, you know, give countless examples of discussions that we've had where the principals of the companies, our C-suite executives are taking a, not a backseat in the conversation, but are letting other folks actually state their opinion. And at the end of the day, go going with that idea. And there's so much to be said about uh, a, a leadership team that takes the ego out of that to say, I don't have to be the one that came up with the best idea. In fact, it's it's even better that somebody else did because yeah. we can solicit more buy-in and, and, and everybody can get in the boat and row. And uh, I think that that's something that I'm really proud of and, and of our company and, and being part of that. And I think that that allows people to lean in when you're asking a lot of them because they trust that you're not just, you know, commanding from the top, but rather, you know, leading from within, within the troops. Yeah. Well, you talked a little earlier too about uh, how your sites are structured a bit differently, and uh, this may help some of our audience as well, especially when we start getting into the turn process and other things that happen uh, you know, in the trenches, so to speak, where the where the magic occurs. But focus a little bit on the resource allocation of your site teams. How are that? You mentioned earlier there's some differentiating factors there. So let's get more specific about what those things might be and how that's yeah. benefiting the overall process of operations. Yeah, I'd say that from, from a very high level, we take the the sales process very seriously. And and oftentimes, you know, even at our most, you know, value-driven communities, that contract is worth over five thousand uh, dollars, the annual lease contract that they're signing. And in, in many cases some of our leases are worth $25,000, $30,000. And I think early on in, in the student housing space, there was this perception that you want to buy from somebody that you're comfortable with, that that when you're leasing an apartment, yes, you want to be able to see yourself there. But I think we may have gone a little too far in you know folks walking out from around the desk with a wrinkled community t-shirt on and flip-flops. And that kind of casual laissez-faire approach, I think, ended up costing a lot of owners money via you know, rate reduction, loss of effective rate, or you know, additional spend on, on the on the gift card and intangible incentive side. And in fact, we still see that. And so, our approach is to put professionals in the position on the leasing side, full-time professionals, to be able to convert those leases that we spend a lot of money generating. And by and large, we operate our communities with with fewer community assistance, not that they're not valuable and needed, but we want to make sure that the folks that are catching the ball when it's kicked to them are very professional, take the process very seriously, and are there to actually convert that lease. You know, I think sometimes when I say that, people, you know, feel like that's a knock on community assistance, and, and it's not. You know, we're, they shouldn't be at fault for the fact that they're working a job while they're getting their education. That's a very admirable thing. We just want to put the right expectations on the right individuals. And so our community uh, staffing structure may look like two or three full-time leasing agents with two or three community assistants, as opposed to eight or nine community assistants run by a leasing manager. Obviously, the numbers have to work out and, and we try to compel our clients to 
uh, understand the value proposition of having those full-time team members. But generally speaking, that's one of the the, the main differences in, in how we approach the sales process of, of our staffing model. Okay, good. I think that, you know, having a, a dedicated group of people that are focused on that leasing effort, especially when you are leasing to two individuals at a time. You've got the parent and the student involved in each of these transactions. So uh, it's very important to have someone who understands both sides of that equation and can speak to the financial side as well as to the more amenity, the lifestyle, the resident life things, the activities, other things that go on. It requires a a bit more educated level, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but someone's got to be uh, on point and understanding how that process works day in and day out. So uh, interesting approach you've gotten there. Yeah, and the consistency of somebody coming in and, and starting and ending an eight-hour shift and, and getting in their groove, starting and completing tasks, you know, converting leases, doing follow-up is, is of great value, right? It, oftentimes, our community assistants will meet their hours by coming in three hours here, two hours there, you know, a couple different split shifts during the day. And th- it takes time to get your head in the right place to, to, to be effective and productive at whatever you're doing. I find that myself. And so having those folks that are there dedicated to that, you know, time slot as a full-time professional, I think we just, we just get a lot of value out of that. What kind of leads me into a, a thing that I've read recently about what you guys do. So you've got these folks working on site. You've also got your corporate folks, your, uh, your regional folks who are traveling, you're geographically dispersed like most student housing operators are, but you've got a policy that uh, allows email quiet time. So could you give us a, a little bit of insight on that, how that came about, and then how it works? And then uh, I'm sure there's got to be some uh, exceptions to the rules, so to speak, with, uh, <laughs> with the way yeah. that uh, operations runs uh, pretty much 24-7 yeah. in the nonstop entertainment world. Oh, fire, flood, or blood, right? Exactly. Um, no, you're, you're right. There, there are exceptions. Um, so I, I believe what you're referring to is our uh, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. email blackout. Yes, so we, you know, we've we've had some of our colleagues and good friends email us, you know, when we, we posted that uh, initially on LinkedIn and, and a lot of question marks, like, is this real? I, I would say, you know, as, as a huge advocate and, and a beneficiary of, of this policy, it, it is very real. Like most growing companies, when we were a smaller company, you've got a lot of, of folks that are, are working hard to, to build the company, right? And that requires long hours. That requires personal sacrifice, and at the end of the day, the the end goal is is, is always the same, which is we're we're trying to work to provide to, to build a company to provide stability for uh, our families to realize our professional successes, so that then we can on the other side of the coin uh, live you know, live fulfilled and, and balanced lives outside of the office. And there was a certain point that we realized, hey. You know, we're there. Not not that that we we can slow down and and kind of you know put our hands up, but rather we're at the point that we have the size of team of resources that if we are working sixteen and eighteen hour days, we're doing something wrong. And yeah. so yeah. what we it gets to that point, right? Where you yeah. you just are you're at a you're either going to be burned out or you've just uh, you know completed a, a very massive project. It's going to be one or the other. You cannot continue on at that uh, that pace for Forever. for very long. Exactly. Yes. And so we made a commitment that if we are going to make that work life balance, you know, just a pivotal initiative really for us to realize that at all levels of the company 
from the top down, we really need to be committed to that. And so, you know, Alex O'Brien, myself, a couple of others, uh, you know, really made that commitment. And I'll tell you from a very, you know, from, you know, from my seat, it really changed everything. Uh, Alex and I, you know, tend to interact a lot during the business day, but a lot of that is, is meetings. And sometimes there's, you know, banter in the evenings to, to, you know, kind of move com- conversations along. And at the end of the day, we realized, you know, those same conversations can be in our inbox whenever we, we come into the office and are we being that much more productive or are we in fact instigating stress in each other's lives? Not just Alex and I, but everybody's um, <laughs> by sending these emails. And, you know, as I talk to some of my colleagues in the space, there's almost this competitive nature of, are you working? Are you, are you self-sacrificing for the company? Are you emailing at 10 o'clock? And to us, we wanted to cut that out. We wanted to make sure that our client correspondence was by and large between business hours and that if somebody chose to work after hours, it was at their discretion without anybody putting anything else on their plate. And I would say that, you know, the things that we've implemented in the last couple of years, that that one right there, uh, I think, has given a lot of people a lot of peace of mind and has done a lot to trend us to where we want to be on the work life balance, to where people feel like they're not beholden to the company 24 hours, but rather you know, they give us their time when, when they need to, and then they can focus on their families or themselves or, or whatever they want to pursue outside of the office and, and not feel guilty about it. Good. Uh, it sounds like an interesting plan. I'm, I'm uh, obviously curious. I'm sure our listeners will be as well as to uh, the returns on that and how well that works out over time, because uh, equally, we've all tried different different methods in that area. And you know, some work, some don't. But I think overall, if you do have a policy that allows uh, the family time and the work-life balance, that's going to get you farther down the road. And it probably has a good good plug into with the, the overall strategy, culture, and, and strategic planning of a company. So uh, let's move on into another area, which, um, you know, we just, you just finished the, the most massive portion of any student operator's life, the dreaded, you know, four-letter mm-hmm. word term. So uh, how, <laughs> how did that go, uh, number one? And then secondly, as you've, you know, you've come through that and uh, you're probably, hopefully, over the hangover stage of turn, where are your heads at at this moment? And then uh, what are you focusing on for the remainder of the year? And, and sure. what, what operational strategies are you trying to do? Is this a time where you go through and now that that's done, it's time to uh, schedule more training for your site teams? Or how does that, what's happening in that area? Uh, I know budgets are another big concern of you as well, yeah. but uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, on the turn uh, subject, you're right. Yeah, we're, we're, we're about three quarters, if not, if not better than that, um, through with, with move-ins, we have some, some late, um, uh, or, you know, late August and early September move-ins, but, but by and large, we're in the process of buttoning up turn. Whenever I, we get to this point, I know everybody's waiting for September 1st and or whatever yes. their last move-in is, but I always think of those videos that I watch on social media that are, uh, people that are about to win a race and then they slow up and somebody passes them. <laughs> and I, we always have to remind ourselves, Hey, you know, we may have had move in, but we need to make sure that we're auditing all of our invoices, that we don't have any, uh, you know, unexpected surprises that that we then need to go back to our clients and say, hey, you know, we, we had a successful move in, we hit occupancy, we, you know, we hit revenue numbers, but we're X, you know, percentage or dollar amount over, over turn budget. And we didn't know that until uh, the middle of September. And so we, we try to stay 
calm, cool, and collected, even though we're, we're by and large past moving and make sure that we go back and, and button up everything and, and make sure that, 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 you know, very risky exercise of executing a, a good turn and move in is, is actually indeed successful. So our teams are doing that a lot of auditing, a lot of systems checks, uh, things of that nature, but we're also switching gears right now to uh, our annual planning period for all of our calendar year budgets. We're in the middle of providing rate recommendations to clients, which we try to get out you know, at the end of August, the beginning of September to ensure that we can hit our renewals early and make sure that we're in a position to project out to market for markets that, that lease really early. And oftentimes we, we will ask for some approvals on opening rates and then through the business plan and budget process, we'll, we'll kind of solidify the full spectrum of rates, but generally want to make sure that we're ahead of the game on approvals for initial renewals and, and new leasing throughout the portfolio. Um, as part of our annual planning process, we do a lot of training. So every year it's inevitable that we'll you know turn over the stones that are our budget tools and our business plan tools and, and all of those things and refresh them and hopefully make them more user-friendly and, and also impactful to our clients when we deliver them. Uh, but we also want to make sure that, you know, as, a, as kind of a bottom a bottom up focused company, that we provide the training to our team members to teach them those skill sets, not just how to use the budget, but how to budget, uh, not how to how to fill out the annual business plan template, but really how to utilize it to tell the story of the asset uh, so that the asset management team and owner understands that we understand their investment strategy and, and at the at the site level can articulate that. Um, so we're working on a lot of that. We'll, we'll work through that process uh, through the middle of October. Some budgets are, are going to do at the beginning of November, but that's a huge company-wide initiative uh, on both the student and the conventional side of the house. Uh, and then we're also doing what we call roadmap projects. So we have a team internally that focuses on the project management of infrastructure development, whether we're going to roll out a new uh, system, process, workflow, whatever it may be. There's a, a number of components to go into that. And so what we do as a company is we try to get ahead of not only the project management of that, but more importantly, the communication of that. So every quarter, the month before the quarter begins, we send out a roadmap to our communities to say, here are all the things that are going to change, whether it's process, you know, forms, uh, whatever it may be, so that they understand what's expected of them and, and what they need to make time for in the coming months. And then we go about deploying that. So we're working through the end of Q3, obviously. At the end of this month, we'll project out. So beginning of September, we'll project out the Q4 roadmap initiatives. And then we'll we'll use that project management team and the operations folks and other folks from different departments to make sure that by the time we hit those deadlines for deployment, that we have everything that we need, training documents, templates, you know, so on and so forth. So a, a lot of that kind of stuff after turn. And so those are those are some of the established things that may have happened as you planned maybe the uh, the previous budget year. What happens in between? Do the site teams uh, are they allowed to uh, send in ideas or suggestions? Or you know, now that they're they're sitting out there in the trenches, so to speak, are they and they're seeing things that are happening? Are they able to bubble up some of those things to a group and be able to have some of those things heard and maybe eventually put into the roadmap? Or how does that work? Oh, absolutely. We um, we have a, a little button that's a, a call it a, an idea box uh, in our digital dashboard, which is which is a place all of our team members go to for 
for a number of things, but it allows our team members to float ideas uh, that come directly to the kind of executive team for things that we need to pursue. But by and large, our operators are actually the ones that develop that roadmap and then feed it up through, you know, call it an executive committee that marries not only the operations initiatives, but all the other initiatives from different departments together to say, okay, you know, what can our team handle? What, what can we conceivably absorb on site? But a lot of the ideas, quite honestly, that come through that committee are effectively from the site level up. Um, one of the things that we're working on right now as an example is an automated lease workflow that, that utilizes some of the features that Entrada has available to it. And the, the, time, uh, the timeliness of that request and the, you know, kind of the initiation of that came from some of our folks who had been on site that are now at the, the home office and recently transitioned. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're very open to incorporating ideas that come, come up from, from the site level or, or any level of the organization. Okay, good. Well, let's uh, shift to a, a somewhat of a broader view of the student housing sector. So, you know, coming from the vendor side, I've been on both sides, actually vendor and operations. Uh, it's, you know, I always run across this when I'm when I was on the operations side talking to vendors, and now on the vendor side talking to operators. This discussion about you know, is it third party fees? Is it own versus not? Is it portfolio size? What what's the age of the property? Is it I'm working in the public or private sector? Is this affordable housing, conventional housing? I hear all those terms, and of course we're focused here on student housing, but um, there there are definitely some operational differentiators from student living than maybe mainstream conventional housing. We talked a little bit about it before, about how you're running your properties, maybe borrowing some things from conventional, some yep. things from student. But for those for those of us who are uh, in the space, it's easy for us to go, yeah, we know that. It's, of course, we understand that. There may be others who may need a little bit more knowledge and understanding of what's, what's happening. Maybe they're coming into the space sure. just now. You know, they might be one of those CAs we talked about, or they might be a rising star on the leasing side, or they might be coming in on the maintenance side. So what differentiates student living from mainstream conventional housing, in your opinion? Yeah, you just hit on a couple of them, but uh, I, you know, I think one of the things that we talk about often is is the fact that that student housing is effectively a lease up every year, whether you whether you're doing a traditional lease up or uh, or you have a stabilized community. Obviously, you've got your renewals there, but but you have a time certain that you're that you're working towards, and so the pressure of a lease up effectively is there uh, in student housing, whereas the conventional in the conventional uh, side of our business. If you miss occupancy one month, you have an opportunity to catch up. And yes, there are things, you know, you have to, adjustments for seasonality, i.e., you know, if, if you go into the winter months, you know, 10% behind on occupancy, traffic is going to slow down depending on your market uh, during those months, at least traditionally it does in some of the northern markets. But multifamily is generally a little bit more forgiving in that, in that sense. From a market volatility uh, standpoint, I think that you know, we, we've, we've seen record deliveries on the conventional side uh, at a national level each of the last, I think, three years, maybe 2017, 2019 are, are both records. But the ability for new deliveries to severely impact a market uh, like uh, we've seen in some student markets is, is uh, a little bit more tempered on the conventional side. And I'd say, in fact, a lot more tempered. So that's one, one thing that's very, very different. The the impact that new deliveries have on on specific submarkets, and then the demographics. I think that um, I mentioned it earlier, where we're grabbing some things on the branding and brand development side from student, taking it over into conventional. But I think the the fact that we have 
two different parties that are entering into a lease, both the guarantor and the student and the sheer volume, which I think you had mentioned a second ago, uh, those things are very different. A 250 unit conventional community would have 250 leases where a 250 unit student community may have 700 leases. And that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, a very different proposition from a uh, technology utilization and a, and a personnel utilization standpoint. The, the sheer uh, effort and energy that goes into signing 700 leases with two parties versus, you know, 250 leases uh, under a joint and several lease that, that the, the actual leaseholder is qualifying themselves. And then on the facility side, I think you mentioned that at the very end, the wear and tear on the communities uh, for the student properties is that much greater and and not the obvious, right? The partying and the, you know, the rowdiness, broken exit signs, all of that. Yes. But students, as compared to their conventional renter counterparts, do not have full-time jobs by and large. And so the amount of time that they're spending at the community using the, you know, the, the mechanicals, the, the ACs, the number of people that are sharing a washer and dryer, um, all of those things end up requiring a student operator to be more keen on preventative maintenance and uh, prudent capital utilization than, than you might be on the conventional side. So those are, those are kind of a few high, high touch points there. Uh, feel free if you want me to elaborate on any of them. Oh, no, I think that uh, you've, you've touched on those. I'm sure a lot of people will say, yes, we, <laughs> we, we have that and more. And of course, we're always welcome to, for <laughs> on the Student Housing Insight uh, website, there's a place for people to be able to log in and actually you know, add commentary and things like that. So I always encourage them to do that. Uh, and it always helps expand our space when they hear part of the podcast and go, yeah, oh, there's sure. so much more. They can still add add things to that. I, we definitely could, we could talk for days about some of this stuff, especially the meantime between failure and, and uh, asset utilization and uh, the, the, the heavy use, I guess, is probably the best way to put it, of uh, a student versus uh, conventional housing, you know, depending upon the areas that it's in. But you, you touched on a lot of that uh, right there. So, uh, Good, uh, good bullet points all around. Well, as we kind of look at uh, some of the challenges that student housing operators are facing, let's uh, let's focus a, a couple of minutes on that and sure. talk a little bit about maybe you know, some of the market volatility you're seeing and maybe some of the other other items in that category that that may make you. Uh, I don't know if you're going to think twice about uh, your next your next uh, group or you know what's happening in the space that's going to either allow us to continue to move forward or maybe you know, have pause for concern. Is the economy a problem? And I'm not, I don't want to get too, too far deep in the weeds on those, but just more of a, of an overview. Sure. Well, I, I would, I would start with this. I think that it has been and, and will continue to be increasingly difficult for uh, an operator to become competitive in the space if they do not have critical mass at the onset, meaning that Cardinal Group at our size in 2013, quite honestly, couldn't compete in 2019. We wouldn't have the resources, both in personnel and, and technology at a, at, at a base level, uh, to be able to provide the, the level of sophistication that is required of our clients. Yeah. You know, I think that we know the amount of investment that you have to make in those platforms. And, and we also all know that uh, management companies aren't, aren't uh, a high margin business, right? And so, if you're not approaching it with a portfolio that's in your back pocket or you're not approaching it with a vertically integrated strategy, that proposition will be be very difficult. So I'd start with that. But for for the operators that are in the space, I think that you know market volatility I hit on a, a, a little while ago, I think 
talent acquisition and and development and retention is something that we're we're really keen to and focused on um, as a challenge, both just as an operator in the space and the fact that that uh, the economy is such that the unemployment rates uh, make, especially on site positions, uh, very competitive. We think that the leveraging of technology is a challenge just because of the fact that one, uh, the demands from from owners and and institutional groups on uh, data, uh, predictive data especially, is becoming greater and greater. But uh, two, the 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 sheer investment that you have to make in actually being able to aggregate that data and visualize it, um, we see that as a big challenge that that operators in the space will be facing. Um, and then you know scaling. I think all of those things, uh, both the talent pool, uh, uh, asset. Uh, talent acquisitions and leveraging available technology all speak to the ability to scale. I think that um, I'm sure many of my competitors would agree or peers would would agree that uh, maintaining potency of your service offerings and your uh, your performance as you scale is of utmost concern. And so making sure that you're investing in the right areas so that the quality of your product isn't dropping off as you grow uh, is a huge challenge for everybody. Um, and we hope to be facing that kind of head on. On the talent side, going back to that for a second, uh, there's been such growth in the sector. You know, I think I was reading an article uh, the other day that that 2017, 18, and 19 there were over 325,000 conventional units delivered uh, nationally. We've seen you know in the volume of you know 40, 50,000 units uh, per year on the uh, beds on the student side uh, being delivered, and with that growth. A lot of teams have had to develop their talent from within. And yes, we've grabbed from uh, the hospitality space and student has grabbed from conventional, but by and large, the gap in in that talent pool as compared to the growth uh, of the industry over the last five years remains pretty vast. And so we're very keen on ensuring that the learning paths that we put people on internally allow people to see a long-term future for themselves, not only in this industry, but specifically our company. We know that we need to make key hires from outside of the company as we continue to grow and develop certain disciplines. But we also know that we need to be able to leverage the talent that we have and, and continue to grow those people so that uh, as we're we're faced with you know issue of acquiring talent and maintaining talent and people in their seats, that we've got a fighting chance as compared to our competitors. And it's kind of kind of going back on the technology side for a second, and what kind of leads me to my next point is uh, there's so many different ways we could uh, could go with technology. And there's a few things that have happened over the years in, in student. You know, we went from, uh, for example, the, remember the old days where you had a, uh, a security button by your bed, yeah. and now we've gone to you know, smartphone technology and things like that have changed over time. But um, now there's all this next, next thing, the next best thing, yeah. the, you know, the best, best thing. You know, pick a pick a phrase to put it in. And we know when you're developing these assets that that's that's a difficult challenge to try to get them into that cycle, especially when a development is you know, takes two to three years or sometimes longer to uh, deliver on those. So you've got infrastructure issues and things like that to deal with. And without really going into the in-depth of the behind-the-scenes uh, low-voltage infrastructure and all that, what are students demanding that you have today? And then what technology pieces have you uh, actually implemented to meet some of those challenges or those requests? Sure. Well, I think what what uh, you may have been alluding to uh, earlier is that what I, I call a shiny object syndrome. I think that that yes. we're seeing the the multifamily space in general. You know, I was, I was just at uh, the National NAA conference here in, in Denver uh, in June, and some of the displays uh, and and the 
uh, exhibition floor just blew me away. But what I left there with was that there is no shortage of vendor options in the space to partner with, to do any myriad of, of things. And it's very difficult for companies to maintain the discipline that they need to understand what really what value proposition is that driving? Is it perceived? Is it actual? And what do you need? What does your company need? Because depending on your size, where you're at in your growth curve, a number of things, you really have to be disciplined at what you decide to leverage on the technology standpoint. And I think that there's oftentimes this pressure to to jump into the deep end and and then you find yourself wondering, you know, what did I actually get out of this besides you know, a, a lot of additional work. And so we try to be very disciplined with that. We, we hired uh, Kara Athman as our VP of data and IT, and she comes from the consulting world and um, has really done a phenomenal job at helping to craft what our technology roadmap looks like. And a lot of that has been focused on the BI side, on the business intelligence side in aggregating all of the disparate data sources that we use, whether that's our HRIS system, our operating system, and aggregating all of that information in a way that we can normalize it and visualize it for our clients, our, our teams here at the home office and, and on site. And we see that that ROI on that technology really being driven by time efficiency. You know, we're about to deploy a new reporting suite for our clients that will cut out thousands of hours across the company uh, on a weekly basis and have a second phase of that we'll, that will do the same uh, coming this fall. And so uh, we're really, really focused on the on the data side, the data aggregation and visualization side as a as a huge component of of our technology platform moving forward. Speaking to the students specifically, really we're focused a lot on the experiential side. So you know, I'll give a shout out to uh, to, to Mitchell Smith at Scion. We were at at ULI, um, and and he and I forget who else were doing a, a presentation, but. They had talked about how uh, really we're, we have to compare ourselves to the Amazons of the world, the Ubers of the world, right? It, it's about this transactional experience. And I thought that was a, a very good way to put it. And we you know, think about it in a very similar fashion that, that the experience that the customer has, the ease of transaction, the intuitive nature of it is really important. And, and we've adjusted the way that our websites function the design aesthetic of our brands, uh, the way that that our uh, leasing workflow works, uh, our utilization of some AI technology that handles tours or setting up tours rather. We've adjusted all of those things to focus on that experiential uh, nature uh, that the student expects these days. And I think we'll start seeing more and more of that, especially as smart uh, technology continues to be integrated into the units, as things like self-guided tours become more of a, a thing. And, you know, again, we want to be on the leading edge of, of the utilization of that technology, but want to do so in a, in a prudent way that we're not overselling something and we're really truly getting the value out of it. Yeah, especially when you, there's some of these items don't really have a, a full focus ROI on them. You're kind of betting on the come, so to speak. Yeah. You hope that some of these things will actually pay dividends in the long run or and not necessarily through an ancillary model, but more on the lines of retaining a student or even attracting them in the beginning to even come and rent at, at a student community. It's uh, sometimes seems like a crapshoot. So uh, it, it sounds like uh, things are 
still happening in that same realm where there are some absolute things. We all know that internet's the prime importance, and you got to have that before you before you have running water. But uh, beyond that, the, some of the other things that are happening now with some of the smart home technology and other things that are coming along, uh, or or even dedicated study space and things like that are becoming more mainstream in the wants of what students are, are looking for, that sense of social community to not only get their, their studies done, but also have a, a level of, uh, of environment and, and ecosystem with their own, uh, within their own uh, units. I think those are things that are coming along that, that, are, that are touching upon that realm. There, obviously, there's a lot of that happens on the conventional side, but I think we can learn a lot from students because of the type of environment that we place those, those folks in. And then as they transition over to conventional, we, we can kind of see some of those patterns continue. But um, interesting focus on you know, smart home, interesting focus on uh, guided tours. I know that's uh, another big thing that's happening. You walk into the unit and you know, there's uh, Alexa's sister that's going to greet you, for example. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's uh, let's. We've, we'll leave the technology. Uh, uh, we may even have another podcast on just technology at some point. I think there's a lot we could talk about there. But uh, you know, how are how are student expectations changing? So we've talked about the. You know, they obviously, they respond to tech. They want they want the latest and greatest. And of course, they want it now. Yep. But what are those expectations that are happening that uh, are maybe giving you some some pause for? while wow, we might need to change our operational focus. Or uh, here are some things that are happening now that that uh, we thought we'd planned on, but maybe we've got to change our strategy. Sure. I think that, you know, going back to the experiential uh, nature of, of, of that, of the transactions that we have with them, whether they're conversations or, or quite literal transactions, I think that the authentic nature of those transactions is really important. And that plays into so many things. It, it plays into the way that we train our teams to interact and and converse with our residents and our prospects. That goes for both our leasing team members as well as our facilities team members. But it also plays into how we market. You know, I'll use I'll use video content as an example. You know, we we do a lot of you know produced you know kind of very clean, uh, very storyboarded videos, and uh, those serve their purpose and and do very well on the on the analytical side and serve their purpose, but so do very organic, uh, non-polished videos. And so we've been doing some A-B testing to show the efficacy of polished production style videos versus uh, organic, you know, hold your hand in the phone and, and kind of walk through some, somebody through a unit type <clears throat> videos. And um, it's really compelling to see some of the analytics on the back end and hear some of our folks on the marketing side talk about how effective and how authentic those videos are perceived. So, you know, I think authenticity of transaction, authenticity of interaction is 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 really important. I'm sure we can talk about the physical space and and what they expect in in programming and 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 bed bath parity and unit finishes and, and all of those things uh, ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. But uh, maybe I'll I'll leave that for a, a development focused. Uh, <laughs> Uh, podcast and and uh, a focus there on the authenticity of, of how we interact and market to our, our residents. As you as you kind of build the the value proposition to a student, and they're they're coming in uh, to the leasing office. How does that experience work? I mean, are they? You know, I, I used to I used to train my student operators to. Uh, I said, if you want to learn how customer service is please go spend a, a couple of hours at Chick-fil-A because, and just yeah. over, just take a look at what they do. 
take a few things away from that and come back and apply it at, at your location? Or how, if a, if a prospective student is coming in for the first time, how does, what does the experience look like? Sure. Well, you know, one thing that we do is certify all of our leasing team members. We have a proprietary program that's called Cardinal Way of Leasing that that really trains our team members on uh, engagement and and how to uh, seek out and, and uh, get information that you need from the from the prospect to curate their experience. So we're we're very methodical about that. We have certification pins. We give you know awards and and bonuses and things based on on folks applying that program and, and really have have seen a lot of success in that. But we also want people to put their their own personal touch into it in a way that will allow them to build rapport with the individual. From a you know kind of in person perspective, you know, I'll go back to my comments about the professionalism um, and, and how we look at at staffing our communities a little bit different from that lens. I think that if you talk to most operators in the space, you know they they want their team members to stand up, greet somebody, come around the desk. Uh, engage them with eye contact. Make sure that they're 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 making feel somebody feel comfortable and at home before they engage engage in the in the business transaction. And and we do a lot of that as well. I think that making sure that our team members are educated not on their not only on their community but their subset of competitors is really important. Uh, going back to the magnitude of the buying decision that students are making when they decide where they want to lease, it's really important that our team members understand who and what we're competing against so that whenever we're talking about the value proposition that is our community, whether that's location or amenities or floor plan types or whatever it may be, that we're not just stating those value propositions as if, you know, we're, we're the only, you know, game in town. Uh, we want to make sure that we're articulating those value propositions in comparison to uh, other communities that they may be considering. And, and ensuring that we're highlighting those in a way that uh, really speaks to, to what that individual is looking for. So uh, I think some, those are some of the areas that we focus on when we're training our team members and, you know, obviously doing doing all the right things, you know, taking IDs and and uh, learning somebody's name and and, you know, making sure making sure to be conversational. I think all of those things are things that we focus on. I was uh, uh, kind of touch upon another topic to switch gears just to, just a touch. You know, when I was uh, running student properties, one of the big things that would always come up is like, gee, you know, Ken, if we were just closer to campus, we would have more traffic. Or if uh, if the bus route ran over here, I think that you know things would be better. We aren't always allowed to be the developer, are we? We can't, you know, we always get to say, well, gee, it'd be great if I had that piece of land that's just right across the street and I've already got a walking bridge and it's all good to go. How do you handle those operational challenges when you've got a team that may not be in the, you know, what let's call it the most ideal situation, but you've been handed something by the owner that says, make this work? Sure. I mean, you know, I grew up, I'm, I'm one of six kids and I grew up uh, with a brother uh, that was uh, the brother that was immediately older than me, track superstar, you know, went to Stanford as a decathlete. And and I remember ho-humming about the lack of natural athletic ability that I had is in comparison to him. And I remember my mom telling me, you know, you're, you can't be something that you're not, you know, we've all heard that. Right. And, right. and uh, <laughs> you know, that was a hard lesson to learn, but I think that we, we approach every asset with that that kind of in mind. Oftentimes when we transition a new community, the website will say luxury student housing. And we're, you know, a community that was built 15 years ago and there are three campus adjacent, 
you know, fall out of bed onto campus communities that, that, you know, have jacuzzis on the balcony, you know, kind of thing. And so we try to own what we are, right? And we, we try to, we try to write the story of the community to fit our position in the market and really the value proposition to the, the demographic of renter that we're renting for. When you look at students on a spectrum of income, uh, uh, household incomes, as an example, um, there are there are a, a subset of, of those students that come from households that may be only able to afford $500 a month. And, th- and there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean that you need to sell it as luxury. You can sell it as a great value, high level of customer service, you know, uh, on the shuttle route, uh, great amenities, um, larger, you know, bedrooms, whatever it may be. You have to find the story that you want to tell for that community. And that's what we challenge our teams to do is it's not going to do our clients any, any good or ourselves any good as, you know, in service to our clients to ho-hum about what we aren't and what we don't have. The sooner we get to understanding who we are and what we have to offer, the quicker we'll be able to come up with a plan that's actually beneficial to, to the investment strategy. So, you know, we own it. Uh, long story short, we try to, we try to own it and, and uh, project that out to the market. Cool. I think that's a good point for everybody. It's like, don't, don't be something you can't be, but always strive for the very best you can be. So that's the, to me, that's, those are the, the things. And of course, having a plan is, I was quoted, quoted Lewis Carroll many times. If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So it's important to know what that roadmap is and then be able to follow it within the confines of what that particular asset is and what it can deliver yeah. in the, uh, the area that it's in. Uh, I'm going to uh, to change gears just a little bit too. We talked about turn before, so I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna save that on and move to the lightning round as sure. we're uh, sort of wrapping up here. So first, we'll we'll talk about the innovation pieces and uh, you know some of the some of the areas that we should be focusing on. But first and foremost is what advice can you offer to uh, site level personnel regarding establishing a best practices approach to on-site operations? And by that, I mean taking uh, pieces and parts out of uh, different areas, bringing them together for, uh, for the, the best way to do things based upon some of the experiences that you've had. What, uh, what advice can you offer those site folks at this point about here's a here's a cool way to run your operation. If I had a couple of different things, what would you focus on there? Uh, yeah, I would focus on one thing that I, I think um, really benefited me as I was coming up and I've been, you know, I've, I've sat in the leasing agents uh, uh, chair, uh, bookkeeper, assistant manager, community manager, and, and, and some of those a couple of times. But as a community manager, th- the thing that I think benefited me the most was being inclusive being very uh, open and honest and engaging about major tasks and workflows that were on my plate, whether it was planning my turn budget or strategy with my maintenance team lead or sitting down with my leasing team member and having them uh, own a first draft of the leasing and marketing uh, section so that they can earmark things that they really feel are valuable uh, to our, our marketing strategy in the year to come. Um, those things require you to be timely and diligent, meaning they take more time because you are involving more people. But by doing that, you you train folks on skills that they they didn't have before. You train them up to think of things the way that that, that maybe you are, and and train them up for that next role. 
Um, but you solicit buy-in and that's one of the most important things is that people feel like they have ownership or they had um, participation in developing a plan that they are then the recipient of. And so when I think of, you know, some of our best managers, some of our best portfolio managers, directors, folks that have, have kind of come up through our system, those folks are the folks that were very giving of themselves and if you're a very open book, especially when it came to high level processes so that they were they were soliciting team buy-in and training those underneath them or you know on their team to take uh, progression in their own in their own careers. Um, I know that's not very you know I don't know that's very tactical but uh, a tactical answer but that's something that I, I know definitely benefited me as a community manager. Good. Well, um, now let's let's talk a little bit and almost in conclusion. But what areas of operation should uh, should we be investigating, investing in, or focusing our attention on in the next three to five years? Maybe there's five or six items you could touch on quickly on in that area. Yeah, um, you know we've talked about you know big data. It, it, I think is really important. I think um, the investment world and the and the asset management world will. will continue to require timely, you know, visualizations of data that is more sophisticated than maybe we've been uh, used to projecting uh, on a weekly or monthly basis. Automation, I think, is something that we're really focused on. We're really focused on buying back our time so that our teams are spending less time in report compilation and auditing and more time taking action based on what that data is telling us. I think in the student housing space, revenue management is going to be something that's key in the next 24 to 36 months. You know, Yieldstar, I think, is the is the incumbent there, but they have, you know, over the last three to four years have, have lost some market share in the core operating system side. And Intrada on the inverse is, has uh, consolidated market share and, and is in the process of releasing their own revenue management tools. So I think that, that the maturity of a lot of our call it top 50 markets in the student housing space, the depth of market, the depth of historical data will allow uh, operators to actually utilize revenue management in a way that we by and large have not been able to in student housing. And then smart technology, I think that that's something that, especially since we, we continue to see a lot of development, both in the conventional and student housing spaces, the integration of, of smart tech and units in common areas, in ways that allow us to do things like self-guided tours, uh, will continue to be a driving force in this industry that that we all need to be thinking about. Very good. Well, here's a couple of personal questions sure. to throw at you. So, uh, should I ask what keeps you up at night, or should I ask who keeps you up at night? <laughs> Heartburn keeps me up <laughs> at night, and uh, my three and a half year old son. No. Um, no, quite honestly, uh, you know, I, I think every year that passes, you know, my, my work hours become more regular. My wife, uh, I think, is very happy. And no, I think we're very happy about the company that we've built and, and about our prospects in the future. So uh, not too much other than, than heartburn occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we can leave with, uh, with, if you were, if you could touch on like one or two key topics for uh, for folks who are maybe not necessarily struggling with operations, but maybe having a few challenges here or there or could improve their processes. I know we've touched on a lot of different areas throughout this podcast, but if there's one or two takeaways, what would you say that uh, puts you on the spot a little bit and say, Eddie, coming from the experience you've had, what uh, what's the best advice that you could give me as a, as an onsite uh, manager or assistant manager, leasing professional, 
maintenance uh, supervisor, et cetera? Yeah, I'd say uh, good old fashioned uh, hard work. I, I think that uh, the lessons that I've learned uh, along the way have a lot to do with the fact that you can't get where you, you want to get by cutting corners, um, whether that's building a team, whether that's developing a budget, whether that's developing yourself. You have to be intellectually honest with where you're at and uh, where your team's at and, and, and kind of how to approach that. And so um, I think that that uh, being introspective about the things that you need to work on as a manager in, in delegating and communicating in, in your soft skills uh, uh, interactions with your teams or your clients, uh, those are all things that, that you have to be aware of if you're, if you're expecting to, to move to the next level because uh, inevitably you'll be managing a bigger team whether that's up or down, and your ability to handle stress, uh, uh, come up with solutions to complex problems, and motivate a team to to, to seek out a goal and achieve it um, will require uh, that of you. And you know th- those things, I think, are, are some of the bits of advice I'd give folks that are looking to continue to develop themselves and continue to progress their careers. Very good. Well, Eddie, I really appreciate you uh, stopping by today and, and joining us. I know that uh, there'll probably be lots of questions that folks may have, and hopefully uh, they'll reach out through the uh, the blogs that we have on the Student Housing Insight side. And looking forward to uh, speaking to you again very soon. Thank you. I appreciate you having me, and uh, I've, uh, I've enjoyed working with you on this. So uh, thanks again, and, and we'll talk soon. All right. Well, there you have it, guys. Uh, Again, Eddie Moreno, EVP of Operations at Cardinal Management Group out in Denver, Colorado. Great guy. Great company. Love their culture. uh, Love everything that they're trying to do from a standpoint of, uh, you know, delivering on what Student Housing Insights mission is, which is make student housing better. They seem to constantly be looking at you know how they can do things better for the resident, do things better for the employees, do things better for for the investor, and you know that's that's the right way to do it. You take care of your customers, your customers will take care of your employees, your employees will take care of your investors. So really appreciate him taking the time out to to spend with you on this, and thank you for taking the time out to interview him as well. Oh, glad to do it. You know, I'm so happy to see our industry, uh, especially in the student sector, continuing to evolve and grow. And uh, thanks to the efforts of folks like yourself and, uh, and and others who are emphasizing the educational aspects of things and then dovetailing in the operations piece and giving folks perspective of not just running things on site, but also what happens in the corporate office, I think is, uh, is valuable uh, education as we continue to evolve our industry. Well, and speaking of education, we have got something coming up next week on November 7th at 1 p.m. Excuse me, that may be 1.30. I need to go back and check that. I'll have it in the in the podcast notes for everybody to check. <laughs> Apologies I didn't bring it into the studio with me. But we're sitting down with Dr. Phil Batazuski, who is um, also one of our other co-hosts. And we recently did an episode on mental health and resources on campus. We're actually following that up with a webinar that we're doing with Grace Hill. That's going to be on November 7th. It will be recorded. So even if you're not able to make the the live recording of it on November 7th, I'm sure we'll have that posted so that you can you can take a look at it, but it's completely free. All you need to do is go to the link in the show notes and you'll be able to, to register for it there. 
And I think that's about it. We've got some other great podcasts that are coming up. A lot of stuff coming out of our uh, summits that was recorded that we are releasing. So excited for everybody to to be able to listen to those things. Sounds very exciting. And I know that one de- definitely sounds intriguing. And uh, uh, looking forward again, as I said earlier, we, we put these out for educational purposes and uh, for the, the folks in our industry to take advantage of. And I just hope that we'll uh, continue to be able to do so and uh, continue to get feedback from uh, everyone on future podcasts or things they'd like to uh, to learn more about. Absolutely. And again, thank you to today's sponsor, Simple Bills, for sponsoring this episode. Uh, they have been really great to work with this, this past year as a sponsor. And uh, again, they're the sponsor of this episode as well. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Awesome.